Um, if you're a regular part of the church, as Carla said, you'll know that uh, we've been in a series looking at the seven churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And um, you'll know this is a, a message that Jesus gives through a prophetic vision to his disciple John. And they are messages that are to be read out in the seven significant first century churches in Asia Minor. And throughout this series, there have been encouragements and there are warnings for these churches. And therefore, through God's timeless word for us as well. And uh, we preach through six of these messages. Today, we're in the final one. We conclude the series today, the church in a town called Laodicea. Let's get straight into it and read together in Revelation 3, verse 14 to 22. Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That's Jesus, by the way. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love... I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I read this, my first thoughts were, oh dear, Laodicea, if Jesus were to issue a message like this to Gateway today, I would be mortified, as I'm sure we all would be, and there would have to be root and branch, culture and practice modifications made ASAP. We do not want to be Laodicea. And of course, we can read these ancient texts and say, well... At least I'm not like that. I don't worship idols and ally myself with the gods. I don't mistreat the poor or cheat on my taxes. I, I live the good life. So far as the Christian life goes, I'm doing pretty well. But we have to be careful here because the human heart is deceptive. Scripture actually tells us that. And there is actually every bit a significant warning in here for us today as there was in Laodicea and for the Laodiceans 2,000 years ago. So let's, let's allow God to talk to us today through his word and bring encouragement to us and help us to self-diagnose and course-correct that we might live out together this adventure of faith with purity and compassion as we follow Christ together here at Gateway and display his goodness to the world. First things first, a question of lukewarmness. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, I, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, 
I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, let's talk about lukewarmness as it's described in this passage. To do that, a bit of historical and archaeological context is going to be important in order to understand this verse and how to apply it to us. Laodicea, the town, was situated on the ridge of a valley in uh, modern-day Turkey, in a place called Phrygia. And Laodicea was situated where it was because it was on a trade route. So it was a town built primarily to expedite trade in the region. And as a result of this, Laodicea had become a very, very wealthy place. So much so that in AD 60, when an earthquake severely damaged it, instead of relying on the Roman Empire to help them to rebuild it, they refused all outside help. They said, no thanks, and they did it themselves. This would have been incredibly rare in those days. This is what the Roman historian Tacitus wrote. Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. These guys were as financially solid as it gets and completely independent. But because its location was decided on the basis of the road system rather than its natural resources, whilst it was on an excellent trade route, it didn't actually have its own water source, no springs or rivers. So it was completely dependent on water being pumped in from a distance of a few miles away. That's really important. Cities, cities usually spring up around a water source like a river or a sea, since that's the most basic practical need for life. But Laodicea wasn't. It was built around trade and money. And that's an important thing to just keep in mind as we work through this passage. Now, against this backdrop, there were two sister cities in that region. One was called Colossae, where the Colossian church was situated. And this city was famed for, and this is really important, it's cold, pure, refreshing water source. And about six miles away, over the valley, on the ridge of a mountain, was another city called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for its hot springs, which gave them hot water, which was good for healing baths and so on. It's a stunning place, even today. Here's a picture of Hierapolis coming up. You see these natural pools of hot mineral water that form these beautiful limestone pools that would have been a source of goodness and healing in those days. Doesn't it look like the kind of place you'd like to go and visit? No need for Beth's stressless course if you spend some time there. <laughs> and Hierapolis was situated on a much higher ground across a valley, on a calcium bicarbonate clifftop. So from Laodicea, you would actually be able to look out of your window or stand at your front door and see this across the valley. Now, the irony here is because Laodicea didn't have its own water source, even though it was situated in a region famed for its water supplies, be it the cool waters of Colossae or the hot healing waters of Herapolis, it actually had to have its own water pumped in via stone pipe from a distance of about six miles away. Now, of course, nowadays we get water pumped in from far further afield through the wonders of modern technology and it's heated by water tanks in our home. But in those days, for Laodicea to get water pumped in from six miles away meant constructing these hollow stone pipes which were kind of crudely jammed together and would have to roll over these calcium bicarbonate cliff tops and over heavily sulfuric slimy rocks. Here's a picture of some of the excavations of those pipes. You can see what I mean. 
And the water that traveled through these pipes would become so concentrated with mineral deposits and dirt that they had to build these giant sieves uh, to catch all the griminess as it came through the pipes and regularly remove them and clean out all the sediment. Now, consequently, by the time water had got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It was just lukewarm, and it tasted foul. If you were an unsuspecting visitor to Laodicea, you might drink that water and kind of recoil from the taste and the temperature and just spit it out. And so what you've got here is a water that's neither cold and refreshing like at Colossae, nor hot and healing like across the valley at Hierapolis, but just lukewarm, foul to the taste, fit to be spat out, and frankly, just not very useful. So if you were a resident of Laodicea, or part of a church, or part of the church there, and you were looking out through the window at the plumes of steam overhead in the distance coming from the water in Hierapolis, knowing that when it got to you, it was going to be lukewarm and grim. And at the same time, you're hearing these words of Jesus being read out in the church. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other, but you're actually just lukewarm and foul to the taste, fit to be spat out. You would really get that reference, and you would understand it well. Laodicea was also known for its advanced medical work, which we'll talk about in a moment. But consequently, as a town, it had become specifically connected to the local temple of Asclepios, who was the Greek god of medicine. In that sense, it kind of became a bit of a hotbed for idolatry and the worship of false gods. In other words, they were a town of complete spiritual compromise, or as Jesus puts it, spiritual lukewarmness. And that's not really surprising given its culture and geography. One writer says that if you are vulnerable to the supply of something as critical to life as water and become highly dependent on an outside source for your supply, then as a community, you learn the art of appeasement and compromise. That's actually a really important concept for us as a people who live in a society that presents all sorts of gods of its own and tells us repeatedly how we're to live and what we are to consume and the things that we are to give ourselves to if we want to find satisfaction and reward in this life. These little gods like money and sex and power. If you give yourself to things that aren't of God, you become slave to those things and then you become dependent on them. So you, like the Laodiceans, will learn the art of appeasement and compromise in order to keep a steady supply of that thing. That's actually the basis of unhealthy addictions and habits of all sorts. So what we've got here in Laodicea is a town wealthy and commercially stronger than all of its neighbors, but living in complete compromise in order to sustain itself. And Jesus says, you are neither spiritually cool and refreshing, like the waters of Colossae, nor hot and healing like the waters of Hierapolis. And you're walking around clothed in your money, but basically completely unaware of the danger of your situation. And he says to them in verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. And the spiritual implications of this are clear. You've become haughty and idolatrous. Your wealth and supply has made you proud because you don't think you need anything. So instead of pressing into dependence on God and worship, you've pressed into lining your pockets by demonstrating your wealth and power to the world. 
You are defined by your wealth instead of your worship. You've chased after money. You've worshipped false gods. And now look, it completely defines you. Because you have praised self-sufficiency and money as the primary thing, you've become spiritually lukewarm. You aren't providing cool-watered refreshment for the spiritually weary, nor hot-watered healing for the spiritually sick. So what are you doing? Your devotion to Jesus and your witness to the world has become insipid and lukewarm. And in that sense, you are totally ineffective and distasteful. That's not a judgment that we want to face here at Gateway. There's a book by G.K. Beale called We Become What We Worship. The premise of this book is that whatever takes primacy in your life, you'll become like that thing. If you worship money, you'll become greedy and stingy and do bad things to amass wealth. If you worship health, you'll become frightened of disease and characterized by unhealthy fear over boldness. If you worship sex, you'll become promiscuous and flirtatious and obsessed with image, and you'll start to embody the very thing that you worship. And of course, we are meant to worship God and become like Him. There's a stark warning for us here. We become like what we worship, what takes primacy in our hearts. And if we worship the wrong thing, then the pull is that we'll just surround ourselves with gold and health and fine clothes and define ourselves accordingly and become like the Laodiceans. I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. And our witness will become lukewarm because our faith and love for Christ has become secondary and lukewarm. And that in itself is completely logical because, as the pastor John Piper says, we commend, we talk about, and gush over, and recommend what we cherish. If you love your wife and your kids, your friends, you'll talk about them in positive terms. And so too with Jesus. If we cherish him, we'll commend him to the world. We commend what we cherish. This passage isn't as much about temperature as the danger of idolatry and human pride and what that does to the effectiveness of our relationship with Jesus and how we demonstrate him to the watching world. A church like ours here at Gateway, our joint effort throughout all of our lives, not just what gets said or sung here on the stage on a Sunday, it's meant to offer spiritual refreshing and healing, cool and or hot water, which is effective. And if we aren't, to be more pointed, if you and I aren't, then we've got problems of lukewarmness and foul taste of our own to sort out. Let's look further into Jesus' assessment of Laodicea. Again, verse 17 and 18. You say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch! And then look what he does. In a city obsessed with what they can obtain with their money, he encourages them to buy stuff. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve ointment to put on your eyes so that you can see because you're blind. Everything in our culture right now tells us do your own thing, amass wealth, become self-sufficient, 
go your own way. And that is a tempting message because it has as its goal the belief that I am rich. I don't need a thing. I have all that I need here. But beware this belief because the opposite is true. Jesus' assessment on that kind of declaration of independence is this. You're wretched and you're poor. And that's because without the riches of life in Christ. That's what we are. Without Christ, we are spiritually and morally bankrupt. We're just bags of meat floating around in the ether until our days are up and exercise in futile endurance. And no amount of wealth or success is going to change that because the fundamental need of the human heart is to be in relationship with God. And so what does Jesus say next? You think you're rich? You think you've got buying power with all your wealth and success? Well, let me tell you something about buying. You do need to buy stuff from me. Three things. Here's what they are. Verse 18. Gold. Refined in the fire. Gold is a, is a biblical expression for steadfast, enduring faith in Jesus. And definitely not in all the other things that you might be tempted to put your faith in for salvation and comfort. Just this week, those of us who are doing the community Bible reading would have read in 1 Peter 1 that even when we go through trials, do you feel like you're going through trials? Even those very trials, if we endure in trusting Christ, they are producing for us a faith that is more refined and lasting and beneficial than the purest gold that has been refined in the furnace. It says, this faith on the final day will result in praise and glory and honor for us. What a promise for those of us who endure. Clothes, buy white garments to cover the shame of your nakedness. In Scripture, shame and nakedness is always associated with idolatry and the humiliation that comes with that. When Israel worships idols, God talks about it in terms of promiscuity and adultery and just giving yourself over, body, mind, and soul, to everything that wants you, which is harmful and brings shame and spiritual nakedness and knocks out your defenses and leaves you open to being overrun by the idolatrous filth of the world. So come and buy white, pure clothes instead, he says, by leaning on me and rediscovering life in me. And as you do, there is forgiveness and healing, and instead of filth and shame, I will clothe you in the finest white linen so that you can present yourself to me and to the world as the pure, clean, forgiven child of God that you are. So we've got gold, we've got clothes, and then he goes for health. One of the other things that Laodicea was famous for was that it was, uh, it was a medical center. It had a famous medical school there, uh, and it was the birthing place for the development of mixtures and ointments for medicines. The most famous of these was an ointment for an eye salve made from Phrygian powder mixed with oil. And so it became known as a center for eyesight healing, for ophthalmology. If you had an eye complaint in the Roman Empire, then you needed to go and see a doctor in Laodicea. So what we've got here is a very wealthy, well-dressed, self-sufficient people who are drunk on their wealth and also the world leaders in sight. If you wanted to see, you need to go to Laodicea. And Jesus says to them, you're blind. 
forget your medicines. You need to come to me and receive ointment, salve for your eyes, so that you can truly see. At the moment, you're walking around in a self-induced haze of idolatry and self-sufficiency, high on your medicinal powers, but spiritually speaking, you're actually poor and naked and blind. Instead, come to me. Let me wipe the fog away from your eyes, the fog of the world, so that you can see again clearly. And this is every bit as relevant to us in BCP this morning as it was in Laodicea then, because it has to do with the basic structures and desires of the human heart. To be loved and to love something, that's how he made us. Jesus offers us that, and if you don't accept it, you will simply find something else to take his place in your heart. We all worship something. If it's not Jesus, it will be an idol of some sort. And idolatry, as we've seen, leads to shame and nakedness and spiritual blindness. That was the problem for the lukewarm Laodiceans, and it's a challenge for us today as well. Because the verdict of Christ on a church that becomes lukewarm in its witness to the world is this. I will spit you out of my mouth. If the Laodiceans, gateway, if, if we don't identify fully with Christ in our culture and say, no, I will not compromise and surrender to the ideologies of the world and the idolatrous lure of gold and clothes and health, then Christ will not identify with us. He will, in effect, spit us out of his mouth. So what are we to do if we are to avoid spiritual lukewarmness and the death spiral that inevitably follows it? Buy gold. Clothe yourself in white clothes. Put salve on your eyes so that you can see. As we close out this series on the seven churches, I want us to double-click on each of these things because we live in an affluent age. We're rich and we're independent, and our culture is all sorts of crazy at the moment. So if we want to keep our eyes fixed on the king, hold to our values, and maintain a distinctive and effective witness into the world, avoiding lukewarmness and foul taste, then we need to fight for these things. Firstly, buy gold from Jesus. That's a metaphoric way of saying, keep your heart and your treasure in the right place. As Matt said last week, lash yourself to the mast. Make a choice to put your trust in Jesus, come what may, and whatever you are going through. Salvation and soul satisfaction can only only be found in him. Our, our world will tell you to look inside yourself and to decide what you think will satisfy and save you and then kind of drape some spirituality over the top so that it has a, a nice moral veneer. Gateway. That is bunkum. We are children of God, called by God, by name for relationship with God, defined by God, not by our culture or what our culture tells us we should be, nor by anything that we're going to find inside ourselves if we look hard enough. I was at um, Ads and Becky's wedding speaking a few weeks back, and I, I mentioned this then, that to look anywhere else for the stuff is to say that everything else is a better God than God. You will not find it inside yourself. I am not God. You are not a God. I know this because I know that most of us struggle with dodgy joint pain and chest infections and discouragements and anxieties. 
earlier this year, I literally superglued my own jumper to my arm by accident. I couldn't get it off. It was ridiculous. I am not a god. I'm not going to find the source of life and purpose for being within myself. There is only one place we'll find fulfillment, belonging, and the destiny that we're made for. It's with God. King David said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you are my strong tower and refuge. That's what we need to believe and do. Lean on the rock. Stand on the rock. Trust the rock. The prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah, said, there is none besides you. There is no rock like God. If we want to avoid lukewarmness, run to the rock, Jesus, and lean on him with all your might. And if that seems like a mountain to you from where you are now, that's okay. We do this stuff together, and we help one another, and we encourage each other right here in his body, the church. That's why the church is a complete non-negotiable for those who love Jesus. That's why we've just preached through a seven-week series looking at what it means to participate with Jesus in building his church. The church is God's plan A for the world. It is through the church that the world will come to know him. We have work to do here, people. I've heard people say that the church needs to be more of a battle cruiser than a cruise liner. One takes trained and motivated people into mission, One plays lounge music and caters for your individual tastes. (laughs) One is red hot, one is lukewarm. This has been an utterly exhausting 18 months. It's very tempting to want to sit on the lounge deck with a cocktail and an umbrella. I understand that. I often feel like that myself. This might be true of you today even. Certainly it has been for me at times. If you're feeling a little bit cozy and complacent in your faith and witness, be careful. We're not lukewarm sun loungers on the pool deck. We're soldiers on active duty. That's how Paul describes us. And we might need to call ourselves to action again in this season. That's why we're fighting a battle for our building project right now. Two more weeks, and it's a straight yes or no. We can be sun loungers soaking up the sun as these facilities crumble around us while Barry Manlow wafts over the airwaves. Or we can be red-hot, united, alert, and active to the task of maintaining the facilities that will facilitate our mission to the world to make Jesus known. Secondly, buy the right clothes. This one is super important because in the context, what it's saying is don't compromise and dirty yourself by following false idols. And in this day and age, idols come flying at you from the minute you open your eyes in the morning. And usually they come in the form of all the things that you can choose to do and consume to make you comfortable and happy. There's a warning here for us as a church and as individuals, especially as people who live in one of the most affluent counties in one of the most affluent nations at the most affluent time in human history that we might be tempted to say, I can save myself, just like the Laodiceans. No earthquake is going to keep me down. All the resources that I need are within my own treasury. Or even worse, for us as a a church to hedge our bets. Of course I trust you, God, but I'm also going to just trust in my own means and my own philosophies of how 
life should be done and lived, and about my own desires and feelings about what's right and wrong. Your word, O oh Lord, and a little bit of mine as well, to hedge your bets on God is to worship idols. Because it says, I'll trust you so far, but I'll have a backup plan just in case. Just in case you aren't who you say you are. Just in case you're not as mighty to save as your word says that you are. Just in case I don't find the kind of love that I'm looking for in you. When the water runs out, I might need an ally. So I'll just feather my nest in a number of places and hedge my bets. And if God doesn't deliver, then I've got a backup plan. Or to put it another way, to live neither cold nor hot, but a tepid, foul-tasting mixture of it all. Or as the passage puts it, lukewarm, comfortable, independent, and totally ineffective. We're not into that here at all. That's not to say that you shouldn't come here and find rest and healing and spiritual refreshment. We actively want that for one another, and we should pray for that, but we are also People on a mission, with a mission. And in the long term, we don't carry lukewarm passengers into the sunset. We lead soldiers into battle. Thirdly, buy salve for your eyes. See Jesus and keep your eyes fixed on him. I have trained our dog at home to stop before she crosses a road or eats her dinner or bolts out of the front door to stop and to sit and to make strong eye contact with me. And once I know that she's focused and not distracted by other things, I say, yes, and she walks or eats or runs or whatever. If she doesn't do that, she'll eat slugs and get distracted by birds or my kids, and she'll <laughs> bolt into the road and she'll hurt herself or someone else. And so I've trained her to look at her master before she does these things because I care for her. I know what she needs, and I know what will hurt her, so I get her attention, I get her to dial in, and then I give her what she needs. Dogs need a master. They are dangerous and, in, and at danger without one, even in the pack. They're always looking for the alpha. Jesus is our, is our alpha. Not the drawer of riches or the distraction of easy entertainment or the pull of comfort or the desire for self-satisfaction independence. Those things are the trophies of lukewarm living in 21st century Britain. These are the things that will catch our attention, cloud out the master's voice, and leave us prone to bolting into the traffic or consuming stuff that tastes sweet on the lips but poisons the soul. We need to set our eyes on Jesus. Read about Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Set your standards by Jesus. Be defined by Jesus and his mission. Find your worth in Jesus who loves you and wants you to look into his eyes so that he can make sure that you are razor sharp and red hot and not flabby and lukewarm. In John 9.39, Jesus says this. Hear this well. For judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see. If you want to see clearly, you don't need to go to Laodicea. You need to come to Jesus, who provides, provides the salve that will cure your blindness and give you sight. This is a really challenging message to preach this morning. If you're feeling the slight sting of the word of God through this warning letter to the Laodiceans, 
that's okay. God's word should do that. I believe that God's word should both wound and heal. It should open up for us areas in our hearts that are in darkness and call us back into light to kind of jolt us awake a little bit if we've got a bit sleepy. Listen to what it says again in verse 19. Those I love, those I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent, change. In other words, God loves you enough to tell you off when you need it. He does not want to spit you out of his mouth. That's precisely why he issues this warning to us. If you've slipped into lukewarmness, repent, change your ways. It's not too late to wake up and throw off idolatry and shame and come to me again for healing and restoration. He's not giving up on you. He will never give up on you. He's near to you. Just look at what it says in the next verse, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. It couldn't be any clearer. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He is near to you. He knocks at the door. He wants you to open the door to him and he will dine with you. In that culture, to share a meal, to break bread together, was a sign of a relational bond and a deep affection and companionship and acceptance of one another. Now, we're nearly there, but there's one final important piece of this message. In fact, the whole series to consider here. One of the overriding themes of the book of Revelation is this repeated call to the church to overcome, to be victorious. In spite of culture and circumstances and everything else you're facing, the repeated call is to overcome. The Greek word for this is Nike, like the shoe brand. That's where they got it from. Nike was the Greek goddess of victory, and John is stealing that word away from them and redeeming it for his own purposes in this message. He says it to every one of the seven churches we've just preached through, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea, and he says it gateway to us. You want to be victorious? You want to overcome? You want to live the Nike life? You won't do it by following the ways of this world and bowing down to a Greek goddess. You will overcome. Gateway, we will overcome as we look to and surrender to and hold fast to Jesus. That's how we live the Nike life. That's how we overcome. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. In fact, in Revelation 12, 11, we get the answer for how the church will overcome every hurdle, including the history-long onslaught of Satan. It says, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's always Jesus. It's his blood shed for us. It's the blood of the Lamb and our ongoing confession of faith in him and reliance on him, the word of our testimony. That's how we overcome. That's how we avoid lukewarm living. Let's finish this passage and the whole series with the promise Jesus makes about this to the Laodiceans and to us. Verse 21. To the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, as we 
cling to Jesus as we devote our lives to him and to making him known, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. And our victory, our overcoming, somehow kind of gets wrapped up and adopted right into the victory of Jesus himself, who overcame the world and sits down in victory even this morning, right now at the right hand of God. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't we pray? King Jesus, thank you so much that uh, what we see in these seven messages, these seven churches, is that we'll do stuff well, we'll do stuff badly. That's the human condition. That's how we are. We're prone to wander as we sung this morning. But the answer is always found in you. It's always found in the gospel. It's always found in the finished work of Christ on the cross, your blood shed, and the clinging to an ongoing testimony of our word, of what you've done in our lives. And so, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, myself, I pray that you would work it so into our hearts, so into our souls, that when we're tempted to be distracted, to look left or right, when we hear the lure, the siren song of culture, the pull of gold, the pull of clothing that uh, will kind of one day run out and, have, and be moth-eaten, when we're tempted to follow after and idolize ourselves and our health and to look inside ourselves for what we think is right, Holy Spirit, would you so jolt us awake that we might not fall into spiritual lukewarmness and compromise and keep our eyes fixed on you in whom all life exists. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're near to us this morning. Thank you that it's not your desire to spit us out of your mouth, but it's your desire to pull us close, to embrace us, to call us your worthy brothers and sisters to present us to the Father as pure and spotless. And we thank you for all these things in your glorious name. Amen.